Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a psychiatrist and neuroscientist studying the intersection of technology, mental health and the brain. People have been able to transfer memories from one animal to another. People have also been able to insert a code into a certain segment of the brain to help the brain retrieve lost memories. Of course, this has not been done in humans yet, but could it one day be done in humans? That was Murali Duraswamy, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University Health System. He spoke to Shannon Bond in our San Francisco Bureau about his research into potential technological solutions to neurological and mental health disorders. How did you get interested in this area of research? Well, I'm fascinated by technology. And of course, you know, the brain and mind are of huge importance to Indians. And I'm an Indian growing up in India. Our uh, religious texts like the Vedas place great emphasis on developing strong memories. And I was also fascinated by Thomas Edison, the great inventor. In fact, he was one of the pioneers of the second industrial revolution. And he said something that has struck with me still today. He said the main purpose of the human body is to carry the brain around. And I said, wow, I really need to study the brain. It's the core of everything we are and what we do. Absolutely. So your research in brain health falls into two broad buckets that look at the intersection of technology and the brain. Let's start with telling us what those are, and then we can kind of go into each of them. So before we get there, I think that many people don't realize the leading public health challenge today in the 21st century are brain and mental health disorders. They cost us globally something like $3 trillion. Just Alzheimer's disease alone affects something like 40 million people. Depression, clinical depression, affects something like 450 million people. They're the biggest cause of lost productivity and suffering today in sort of the younger age groups. So I think it's really, really a big challenge for us as to how to address these problems. And I think technology can be a solution. So I'm interested in two buckets. One is how can we use technology to find solutions to helping people with brain disorders, neurological disorders, and mental disorders? The other bucket is how is technology affecting and changing us as human beings? How is it affecting our behavior and our minds? So let's dig into that first, that first area about how technology could be used to improve brain health. So some of the research you've done is looking really at how artificial intelligence can be applied in medicine. So how does that work? So many brain diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, these are called neurodegenerative disorders, and they creep up very slowly in mid to late life. In fact, the symptoms are so subtle and so slowly progressive that doctors have a very hard time differentiating this from other benign conditions. So for example, Alzheimer's, 30 to 40% of the time at very early stages is often mistaken for just normal aging because everyone has some forgetfulness when they get older or go through menopause or you know they're stressed or don't have enough sleep. And likewise, for diseases like Parkinson's, if you develop some tremors or slowing, you know, it's kind of natural to say you're getting to be in your 50s and 60s. Of course, your gait is going to change or you're having some mild shaking of the hand. So the question there is, could we use information derived from all of the tech devices that we use every day, which are very innocent sort of devices, whether it be the phone, whether it be the computer mouse pad, whether it be appliances in our house, Could we use that kind of an information to generate a unique fingerprint for each individual? 
and could we then tell if these fingerprint patterns are changing in people who develop early Alzheimer's versus people who develop early Parkinson's versus other kinds of conditions. So that's one area. So this is called digital phenotyping. And there have been a number of studies that show that diseases such as Alzheimer's, depression, Parkinson's all have unique digital phenotypes. And using those digital phenotypes, we may be able to screen and detect these diseases 5, 10, 15 years even before they come to the attention of a doctor. And that's a good thing because in many of these conditions, you want to start treatment very early. So what are the actual signals that you're looking at and how are you actually using them to detect these potential problems? The signals are different in different diseases. So for example, in depression, you know, people often get fatigued. Maybe they're going to lie around in their house. Maybe they're not going to use their phone as much to call new people. Maybe they're not going to explore new activities. And so your phone knows everything about you. And so once we establish a baseline pattern of what you are like when you're non-depressed, who are the kinds of people you're uh, calling, how much time do you spend on your couch, how much time do you spend walking around the house, then we know if that pattern changes. If you're all of a sudden lying on the couch a lot, if you're lying on your bed a lot, you're not using the phone, then that may be indicative of something like depression. And likewise, the circadian rhythms from your sweat glands, we can actually capture a signature of stress because your sweat glands are a measure of your autonomic system response. And if you have autonomic arousal, that might indicate you're under chronic high stress. And that could also be an indicator of perhaps things like depression. So that's one area of research. And there are a number of companies in the Bay Area and others, and we ourselves have published some work looking at the promise of these markers for depression. Now, Parkinson's, of course, is associated with tremors, with changes in gait, with slowness, stiffness, etc. Right, physical changes Physical in the body. motor symptoms, these are what are called. Now, one of the most common tools that we use every day is a mouse and a keypad. And that involves physical fine finger movements. And we can capture a number of metrics from those fine finger movements. That is how much tremor there is when you're moving the mouse cursor. Is there like shaking? What's the vibration of that shaking? What's the frequency? And using those metrics, what we showed in this particular paper is that we can distinguish people with a history of Parkinson's-like symptoms versus people who don't have those kinds of symptoms. And where are you getting that actual data on the mouse movements? I mean, is it something people have to opt into? Or? Yeah, so there's different ways of doing it. You can do a former clinical study where people sign consent, they come to the clinic, and then you can sort of track their mouse movements. Or there are anonymized data sets that you can use where there's no identity known. So when you use anonymized data sets with no intent of ever sort of linking it back to the person's identity, that kind of a de-identified data set is appropriate for use for research settings. And then you've also done research looking at using machine learning to analyze various data points to help identify people at risk of Alzheimer's. Can you talk a little bit about that? So Alzheimer's disease, you know, the general public thinks about it as a single disease. It's not a single disease. It's a very heterogeneous condition. Probably there are many types of Alzheimer's disease because some individuals progress at a very slow rate. They may take 15, 20 years to go from very mild memory loss to complete loss of independence, and others progress very fast. And of course, treatment would really depend on which Correct. type you had. And the brain chemistry and the underlying pathology also is very heterogeneous in these individuals. So for example, if you're targeting one kind of a pathology called the amyloid plaque, which is a plaque that builds up in the brain of Alzheimer's patients, you want to make sure that they have the plaque in the first place. Otherwise, if you're giving a vaccine to remove the plaque and the person doesn't have the plaque, then you can't truly test whether it works or not. And 
we have something like 99% failure rate of treatments to date in Alzheimer's because of this heterogeneity and because we are not able to identify homogeneous subgroups of individuals. So we did a research study where we said, what if we were to take the doctors and the scientists out of the equation and give this problem to a type of AI called multi-layer clustering algorithm? It's very simple. What this algorithm does is find homogeneous clusters similar clusters. So we input something like 35 different types of data into this algorithm, everything from age, sex, the person's baseline, cognitive status, their spinal fluid, laboratory measurements, their brain scan variables, as well as the rates at which these people progressed over time. And we said, hey, computer, can you find a bunch of clusters that are identical in all of the biological parameters? And the computer identified one particular cluster that we found very fascinating, which is what we call the ultra-fast declining cluster. And then it found an ultra-slow declining cluster. The difference in progression rates to Alzheimer's between these two clusters was fivefold. So we started out with individuals who were at risk for Alzheimer's. So these were not people who already had the disease. The ultra-slow cluster never progressed to Alzheimer's over the course of our study. The ultra-rapid cluster developed Alzheimer's at five times the rate of you know, what you would normally expect. And so this showed the power of this tool and potentially using this kind of tool, pharmaceutical companies may want to target the ultra rapidly progressing cluster because that's the cluster where without treatment, you would expect them to develop Alzheimer's very soon. It sounds like these studies so far have a lot to do with identifying and maybe improving the way we can diagnose. What are the other benefits you could see coming out of applying these technologies to brain health? Well, ultimately, the goal of neurotechnologies are to produce what's called as a closed-loop system. So one example of a closed-loop system is an implantable device to treat what's called as a refractory epilepsy. A refractory epilepsy is epilepsy that's not traditionally responded to medications. So this device is like a chip that's implanted in the brain in the region where, from brain scans, we know that there's an epileptic foci. So the chip has a sensor that not only detects when an epileptic seizure is coming, but it also zaps that brain region to prevent that seizure from coming. So this chip is already approved on the market being implanted. It's a real-time, closed loop. It doesn't require input. It automatically detects when there's a problem in the nerve cell and automatically fixes it. So similarly, for Parkinson's disease, we know there are tremors, intractable tremors. There's a pacemaker that can be implanted in a particular part of the brainstem and a particular part of the midbrain that can zap certain cells when a person's about to have a tremor and relieve the tremor. Similar attempts have been made for treating memory loss in laboratory models, and they have been successful. For example, people have been able to transfer memories from one animal to another. People have also been able to insert a code into a certain segment of the brain to help the brain retrieve lost memories. Of course, this has not been done in humans yet, but could it one day be done in humans? And then at a more basic drug discovery level, we've now been able to create something called brain in a dish. These are what are called as mini brain organoids. So they're not a full-fledged human brain. Of course, one of the problems with studying the brain is we don't have a perfect model. You know, we have like 100 cures for Alzheimer's in a mouse model, but none of them work in humans because the mouse brain is very different from a human brain. So with these organoids now, for example, you can take stem cells from a patient with Alzheimer's. And stem cells are cells that are found in everyone's body that are what we call undifferentiated cells. And you can trigger them to form any kind of cell. So now with a particular chemical or with the zap of a current, you can make the stem cell become a nerve cell. 
and then the nerve cell sort of grows and develops into a mini brain that is the patient's own brain in a dish. And now you can test all kinds of drugs on that brain in a dish to see if that particular treatment is effective or not before you then bring it into clinical trials. Right, and that's a whole other level of personalized, personalized medicine. Personalized medicine, yeah. correct. This is clearly going to have real changes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market and how doctors would treat patients and how they would diagnose patients. I mean, I wonder as people are thinking about how these technologies are going to be applied in medicine, it makes me think a lot about the growing concerns we're hearing more generally about how algorithms may be replicating the biases that we as humans carry, even if unintentionally. How are researchers and people thinking about tackling that question of bias when it comes to algorithms that might be used to detect disease or to inform how we're treating disease? So the two solutions for that, first is transparency. I think we don't want black box algorithms. We want algorithms as much as possible to be transparent. And the advantage of being transparent is that other researchers can reverse engineer it, can test it, can maybe use it in their own data sets to see if there is a bias or whether the results are replicable or not. So that's one. The second, of course, is we want a set of ethical standards built in. It's easy to design a malicious algorithm. The advantage of it being transparent is then you can have academics, you can have ethicists, you can have competitors, you can have multiple people vetting that algorithm to make sure that the coding of the algorithm has a true beneficial intent. And of course, the medical industry and medical researchers are used to these sort of ethical challenges in they the research are, they're doing. They are, but you know, we, uh, there's still a lot of bad actors, and of course, many companies are driven by profit. So I think these are the kinds of issues right from the beginning we have to get right privacy issues. We really want a set of ethical and scientific standards. Now, the biggest challenge to me so far with AI algorithms has been the lack of well-curated data sets to really replicate and validate. It's very easy to generate an initial signal, so there's lots of initial promising studies, but then you don't have a second big data set to really replicate it. And so, is that just because the field is so new? Yeah, the field is fragmented. A lot of medical records are protected, and they're not well curated in a format that can be analyzed. A lot of doctors write notes, and it's hard to digitize those notes and extract useful information from it. So there's a variety of challenges. But I think the progress that's been made has been tremendous, and I think it's only a matter of time before these challenges are overcome. So let's dig into the other strand of your research, looking at the impact being surrounded by all this technology is having on our brains. One area of research you've done looks at correlations between internet use and signs of addiction in college students. What did you find? Well, it's well known that we're all addicted to our phones, to our emails, to our text messages. In fact, some people in Silicon Valley would argue that many of these social media programs especially were designed to exploit vulnerabilities in our human psyche. And teenagers and children are a lot more vulnerable because they are not used to anything else. This is the environment they've grown up in, whereas a lot of us know things outside of the digital world and we're able to unhook ourselves and detox ourselves. So one of the things we were interested in is could we develop and validate an internet addiction rating scale? 
we know what addiction is. As a psychiatrist and as a neuroscientist, I see addicts, you know, in my practice. We know classic signs of addiction are you want it all the time, and when you're away from it, you get these withdrawal symptoms, and then you need the fix to solve that. So there was a scale that was adapted from a classic cocaine and heroin addiction scale, and then we took a group of freshman students who gave written informed consent and agreed to have all of their internet usage monitored for a whole semester. And then we That's gave- quite a bold decision to make. Yes. These were all freshman students who were enrolled in a computer science class, and they were also curious and interested. And we promised them that we were only going to use anonymized data, so there was never going to be any link to the individual students. And of course, maybe some good things, maybe they didn't go to as many bad sites as they would have, you know, now that they knew they were being monitored. Our intent was to correlate their internet usage and actually validate this rating scale. And that's what we did. And there is now an internet addiction rating scale out there. It's just a survey and you can fill it out. And if you get a certain score above a cut point, then maybe it's time for a digital detox, you know, put your cell phone in one of these jail modes, take a break for two days, three days and... And come out a better person. And come out a better person and interact with the real world. But of course, I mean, you found different types of behavior correlated differently, right? Or or different types of internet usage. Of course. The video usage and 30, 40% of our brain processing is devoted to the visual system. So that's why, you know, videos are consumed a lot more. And then, of course, audio is the second. The written blog form is the least likely to be addicting. And that's why blogs that have a lot of pictures quick hits, like bullet points, numbers, anything you can give us a quick hit is really addicting. But ultimately, it's video games. And video games have this really entrancing trance music with sex, violence, you know, all of these quick hits. And it's just a super stimulus. It's the classic super stimulus that gets the dopamine system revved up. So you've also looked at the relationship between social media and mental health in various ways. So I think, again, it's a two-way street. Social media tools and digital media tools have great promise to help increase access to mental health. Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst teenagers in most countries around the world, and particularly in the U.S., U.K. And nowadays, many teens have started posting and sharing their distress, their suicidal thoughts on social media. In fact, about two years ago, there was a teen in Miami who actually posted on Facebook that she was distressed. There was nobody out to help her. She was at the end of her rope, and she didn't know what to do. And then she live-streamed her death. It's been a big scandal for these companies, right? Well, the companies don't know what to do because it's a Pandora's box, right? They're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. And one of the hardest challenges for a company like Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter is what to do if someone's live-streaming a death. If you stop it, then no one's going to watch it, and there may be no copycat actors. But on the other hand, you stop it, no one's going to be able to trace that person to really get help. So I think in many cases, social media companies have opted to let these acts proceed. But what they have done now is they realize they really need to be more socially responsible to try to see if they can provide help to identify early warning signs. And so many of these companies have instituted AI algorithms. It's still very early stage. Outsiders have not seen these algorithms, so we don't know. I think Facebook, Google, possibly Twitter, Snapchat have these algorithms in place. I believe they've consulted with outside experts to develop these. And I've chatted with people at Facebook and Google, and I think they're very well-intentioned. In fact, the person at Facebook heading this is a former Duke graduate who's a psychologist. And so I think they've flagged certain words and certain phrases. And so they have an algorithmic approach. Then, you know, it's flagged, and then a message is sent to the person 
a message may be then sent to the person's immediate circle of friends. And then, then again, if that's not successful, there may be somebody from Facebook who reaches out to them. In the last resort, they may actually reach out to local police to go find that person help. But first of all, the algorithm's not fully transparent. And I'm not sure if each company should develop their own in-house product because this is the kind of public health issue would be much better if there was a public-private partnership if 10 social media companies banded up with, you know, a bunch of mental health professionals, a few universities like Stanford, and it was done as a public-private initiative rather than as all these isolated efforts. Right, because in some ways it is a lot to expect a company to have to take on that kind of responsibility. Yeah, all of a sudden they become a crisis counseling center. Right, and at the same time, when they're trying to weigh their users' privacy rights and all these other So, and it also begs the question of how much is social media to blame? Are you cutting yourself off from real-world support? Social support is the single biggest contributor to human resilience. The stronger your social bonds, the stronger and deeper the networks you build in real life, the greater your resilience to mental health issues. The more time you spend on social media, the more likely you are to be isolated. And you might have a false sense of having you know, 5,000 friends, but none of them may really be your true deep friends. So that's one. There's also cyberbullying. You know, a lot of people feel inadequate and insecure when they see other people having good times. So there are some unwarranted side effects of uh, social media. It's not been fully quantified. And again, Talking about digital phenotypes, there have now been research showing you can actually look at people's Instagram posts to get a sense for how depressed someone is or not. What are the data that they're they looking at? They look at, at micro-expressions on the person's face. So there are a number of micro-expressions that can be automatically quantified. And based on that, you can tell how happy someone is, how sad someone is, etc. <laughs> it seems it's, it's science fiction. It's, but it's a brave new world. It's already here. I want to ask you about another piece of writing that you'd shared with me ahead of this. What can Twitter tell us about our happiness, not just as individuals, but actually as a society? This is not just Twitter. It goes to all of social media, right? Millions, billions of posts on Twitter, Facebook are capturing every moment of our waking life. And for a researcher like you, I mean, this This is is a wealth of data. So... I actually worked with two researchers recently to write a short blog to illustrate the power of Twitter. This group has actually used Twitter to quantify a variety of health metrics. They can actually predict things like which county is the healthiest, which county is the most obese, which county exercises the most. Because you know what people are eating because they tweet about it. You know when people are exercising. And based on the analysis of the words, you know whether they're feeling happy, whether they're feeling healthy. So it's a wealth of information. And in a sense, the economy of the world is now measured by GDP. That's a false metric because money doesn't equate happiness. Right. And research has borne that out. Right. So if you want a real-time metric of someone's well-being, someone's happiness... Perhaps it's these social media posts, and maybe you know there is a way to add these metrics to the traditional economic metrics of development to make it really tangible. If you had to predict the biggest impact of technology on brain science, what are we going to see happen? What will be the most significant outcome? Well, there's going to be a melding of the mind, the brain, and the machine. Brain-computer interfaces, I think you call it. Yes, the brain-computer interface is actually a much more sort of narrow concept, but more and more humans and machines are going to work together, and that's going to change us in many, many ways. So two big areas that I'm particularly excited about. One is something called mind mapping. 
there is an unprecedented effort underway to understand how the brain works at a circuit level, the human brain, essentially to reverse engineer the human brain. The better we understand the human brain, the better we can develop computers that simulate and mimic the human brain. So there's an unprecedented effort underway. Once we can map the mind and build an artificial human mind, then the possibilities become just mind-blowing. You can start doing mind reading. You can type directly from the brain without having to use your fingers. You can read people's emotions. You can diagnose diseases. You can reconstruct computational models of diseases and find very precise circuits. And then you can start manipulating those circuits to treat those diseases. And then as you develop better computers that mimic the human brain, of course, there's endless possibilities of how these computers can help us. They can help the elderly. They can help children learn better. They can serve as technology aids for us. And I'm very sure that we're going to have implanted devices. We already have cochlear implants to improve hearing. We have retinal telescopes now that can dramatically improve vision in people with retinal disease. And soon, I think you're going to have a range of devices like that to improve all kinds of human capabilities. So Elon Musk, for example, has talked about his company called Neuralink to develop a mesh that directly connects the brain to the internet. So I think there's enormous potential for technology to improve human well-being. But it has to be set within the right ethical and scientific framework. Right, because it feels like for every one of those benefits that you described, there's the huge privacy risks, right. the potential for bad actors. So. And inequality, you know, it might worsen inequality. So we need to make sure that the access is equal to all segments of society. Well, let's hope that people like you will want to lead the way in doing this. Well, thank you. been asking our listeners to take part in an informal survey and give their views on overrated and underrated technologies. Which non-tech book gives the best insight into the impact of technology on our world? And what's the biggest threat to the tech industry today? If you'd like to take part, please send us an email with your answers to tectonic at ft.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.